brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there Beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested Every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know The less you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us Just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? I said chat Greg Carwood and Company with a name like the higher side chats it's pretty obvious that the glorious green goddess that is sweet lady cannabis is always ever so subtly present in this show's dna because in a backwards age of prohibition to actually form a personal relationship with the herb is in and of itself an act of rebellion and a declaration of sovereignty over one's own consciousness which is oftentimes a dangerous thing to do And it's endlessly frustrating that there is such a long and violent history of death and imprisonment affecting untold numbers of people over centuries and the Empire's persistent quest to control all aspects of the human experience. Yet anyone with the eyes to see can clearly recognize this plant's ability to facilitate creative and independent modes of consciousness, and across the board, its vast catalog of uses is so universally positive that one has to wonder if it really is one of the greatest gifts of the gods and enemy number one of empires of all ages. Because it facilitated spiritual enlightenment at a time of centralized religious authority, provided a potency boost to the magical rituals of many sects and secret orders forced to hide in the shadows of history, it inspired countless artists to create their masterworks and, in more recent times, coincidentally threatens the pocketbook in three major areas of control and wealth building that the American elite have been built on, fuel, medicine, and textiles. So we're left with an inefficient, polluted, and hazardous world of oils, plastic, pharmaceutical chemicals, incarceration, and forest-destroying practices, all the result of systematically removing this one magical plant from the people. Well, the tide is thankfully turning as we twist the Empire's arm, and today's guest Chris Bennett knows this all too well, as he's been researching the historic role of cannabis in the spiritual life of humanity for more than a quarter century. He's written about this in several books with titles like Green Gold, The Tree of Life, Marijuana and Magic and Religion, Sex, Drugs and Violence in the Bible, Cannabis and the Soma Solution, and most recently a huge 700 plus page masterwork entitled Liber 420, Cannabis, Magical Herbs and the Occult. An impressive and prolific cannabis chronicler, bona fide marijuana mage of the modern age, and fellow dancer with the devil's weed, Chris Maman. Welcome to the higher side. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I dig your show. Dig what you're doing, man. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm really glad you're here. And this is going to be a lot of fun and very educational because you get into really deep waters with this research. And as you wrote in your inscription to me, your book and my show seem destined for an inevitable collision. And I'm really glad it could be today. Lieber 420 is super impressive. And this is just one of several books you've written on the subject with more to come. What is it about this nexus of cannabis, spirituality, religion, and magic that has fascinated you so much as to dedicate a huge portion of your life to it? How'd you get on such a road less traveled? You know, although my books take on a distinctly anthropological 
folklorist type of flavor. It all started with a very powerful religious experience I had in 1990. One night alone working in this fish plant and smoking some ganja and on a whim reading the book of Revelation. And when I got to the end of the book of Revelation and read the verses about the tree of life, I had this very powerful experience where I just felt like light poured into me and there was a message that cannabis and all its various uses for fiber, for fuel, food, plastics, whatever you can think of, batteries even, you know, it's just incredible the uses of this plant was that tree of life. And I called my wife up at the time. She thought I was having some sort of breakdown and stuff. Mm -hmm. The next day I got up and I was like, was there anything to that or was I just tripping out? And I decided that if there was something to it, then somebody somewhere else will have been familiar with this, you know? And I started trying to find out everything I could about cannabis's role in religion and magic and spent a lifetime doing that as well as promoting the wonders of the cannabis hemp plant, you know? Yes. And that's so funny because the idea that cannabis could be the tree of life in the book of Revelation was definitely on my list of things to ask you about because I've had more than a few guests express this feeling that we are living in the end game, that we're living in apocalyptic times. And not that cannabis ever really went away, but it's definitely slowly been reestablishing its dominance lately. And maybe this resurgence, so to speak, is sort of intelligently guided. Sometimes I wonder about plant spirits and overarching God forms and just how much of what's happening in the zeitgeist is directed from elsewhere. And maybe there is something in there in regards to cannabis, what's happening right now and its importance at this particular place on the timeline. You know, and it's not just the tree of life. The tree of life is for the healing of the nations. But I wrote a book, Cannabis and the Soma Solution, and the Soma was the sacred beverage of the Vedic religion, which led to Hinduism. And in Persia, it was known as Heoma, the sacred beverage of the Mazdian religion that became the Zoroastrian religion, both which are still around. And there's all sorts of great archaeological evidence that's been coming up in the last couple of decades, indicating that this was a cannabis preparation as well. So it's a widespread religious sacrament. And there's lots of archaeological and textual evidence. It's not like I'm interpreting some agent relief and saying, oh, this could mean this and this, like you see with a lot of the mushroom stuff. There's a lot of archaeological and actual textual references to cannabis. Cannabis, the term itself, the name is The root word for it is one of the oldest forms of language. It comes from the Proto-Indo-European language. So even before languages like French and English and Sanskrit split off from the Indo-European language, cannabis, the term kana, its root, was already old. So this is like the oldest type of word even. Mm -hmm. And this obviously might be getting into your earlier book, Cannabis and the Soma Solution, but if we wanted to start at the beginning of the big story and talk about man and marijuana's earliest interactions, I think it was Carl Sagan who suggested it was man's first crop even, but as far as you can tell, how far back does that relationship go? Well, Elizabeth Whalen Barber, who's the foremost agent textile expert in the world, has suggested that tools used for breaking fibers off of hemp stock can be found going back 25,000 years. There's evidence of hemp rope in like the 24,000 year range. Then we have simultaneous almost finds of hemp fiber cloth in Cattle Hayak and Taiwan dating about 12,000 years. And then the first evidence we have of people burning it or using it for ingestion goes back about 5,500 years in the Ukraine region where they found polypot bowls in a cave that were used to burn cannabis inside of a cave which held the fumes in them. And interestingly, this is the same region where it is thought that horse riding developed. And the development of horse riding is thought to have occurred after the manufacturing of hemp ropes, which were used to corral and pull the horses and control them. And it's interesting because one of the main cultures accredited with spreading Uh, The use of cannabis are known by the blanket term Scythians, although this term refers to a variety of different interrelated tribes. But they were all very nomadic and known for their use of horses. And this is how the mythology and religion and use of cannabis is thought to have spread throughout the ancient world and why there are connections between the various cannabis terms in different languages 
going back to this older Indo-European language just because of this common way it was spread around. Interesting. On the esoteric side of things, do you think it would be too bold to suggest that psychedelic plants, cannabis included in there, could have been maybe even the first seeds of spiritual and religious thought for man? Absolutely. I think that what they call the stoned ape theory, and this is a combination that Terence McKenna came up with based on the work of Julian James, the psychologist, the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. James's theory was that agent man, thinking operates in an area of your brain in a different area than speaking. So there's animals that have the basic kind of elements of language almost, like coyotes and killer whales and birds and things like that that can signal to each other and communicate in some way. But that doesn't necessarily mean the ability for deeper reflective thought. I think, therefore, I am abstract thought, that type of thing. And James's theory was that this was a big evolutionary step for humanity, who prior to this was you know just so basically caught up in survival, eating, not being killed type of thing, yeah. that they were not really deeply reflective, you know what I mean? And the first people that experienced that sort of thought, they experienced it as a voice coming from outside of them, much like a schizophrenic experience is thought. And this would occur at times of fear or upheaval or danger, and they'd hear something, and, you know, maybe offer some advice. They'd maybe hear the voice of their father or an ancestor at first, you know, something like that. And this could also be induced through things like starvation or maybe going in a dark cave for long periods of time and psychoactive plants. This is where McKenna came in and suggested that psychoactive plants, in his place, he was particularly focused on the psilocybin mushroom. He suggested that this played a particularly oscillatory role. And I follow along with this, not that I dissuade the use of mushroom and other psychoactives, but my own research has focused primarily around cannabis. And, you know, I could give the example of, say, these controversial references in Hebrew that a number of scholars have suggested are references to cannabis under the name cannabosum. And in these references to cannabosum, Moses, who first hears the angel of the Lord and claims a fire from within a burning bush, is commanded to make this holy oil with about six and a half pounds of cannabosum, which is thought to be cannabis according to some researchers, although many modern Bibles have translated it as calamus or fragrant cane, and this goes back to the first Latin and Greek translations of the Hebrew text. And according to Sula Bennett, who first suggested that this was a reference to cannabis in 1936, this was a reference to cannabis that was mistranslated as calamus. So these references, Moses is commanded to make this holy oil, and every time he's to speak to the Lord, he goes inside this little tent, which is referred to as the tent of the meeting, and he covers himself with this oil, and THC is fatty soluble, your skin's a big organ, and then he also places some of this oil on the altar of incense, and then he speaks to the Lord in the pillar of smoke in the altar of incense, and he focuses on a question, and then an answer comes back. And so when you throw cannabis into this scenario, it really offers a powerful reinterpretation of events because as Moses becomes like a shaman who in other cultures in South America today or Africa ingest a variety of different psychoactive plants and interpret that as some sort of divine revelation. And that throws Moses into the same realm. And there's other references in, in the Bible as well that indicate the further shamanic use of this cannabosum. So it's interesting because when you think about it, everywhere after the Bible became incorporated into this, you know, these different religions and whatnot, everywhere it's gone, one of the biggest things that it's opposed is the plant-based shamanic indigenous religions of the lands that it's traveled to, which is the standard. Those type of things that we see in South America and Africa, that's the standard anthropological way people develop. You know, they start interacting with their environment, they're trying different plants. They get psychoactive effects out of some plants, and this is clearly interpreted as some sort of magical or spiritual type of effect when people first interact. They don't understand chemicals and receptors in the brain and that type of thing. It's all supernatural. The whole world's supernatural at this point. Mm-hmm. And you make a great point about just the difficulty of translating the definitions of something 
like an herb or plant, particularly when DMT-like compounds are in so many different plants and grasses and roots. And the example you gave, there is that phonetic connection that makes you think that it's probably cannabis. And you also mentioned Soma and stoned ape theory. And I think a lot of people who are into this kind of material, the first thing they run into is the mushroom, whether psilocybin or Amanita muscaria, talking about things like John Michael Allegro's work. And I know that you go a different direction. I just wondered if you could maybe speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Why don't we go with Wasson's work and Soma being the mushrooms, very popular theory still. Yes. I have a whole chapter showing the problems I have with Wasson's work. It's important to remember in Vedic literature, Soma is a plant. It's the moon, it's a god, it's a bull. You know, there's all these different types of symbolism. And some of them are pretty specific. And in the Vedas, which is a variety of ancient texts you know, written in the Vedic language that celebrates Soma, the one Veda that describes the description of Soma, the physical description of Soma, the 10th Mandala of the Rig Veda, Wasson disallowed this. He tried to say that this was too much of a later, was one of the last books written and by this time, the identity of Soma has been lost. But there's no like Vedic scholars that agree with that sort of interpretation of the 10th Mandala. Hmm. It's part of the Vedic religion, and it distinctly describes a green and purple plant, you know, ah. <laughs> <laughs> being smashed with rocks in a process very similar to the mortar and pestles used in the preparation of bong today. And the faces of the rocks being turned green by the pressing of the Soma, you know. But I think the more important thing in regards to this is the archaeological evidence. And the archaeological evidence from the Karakum Desert by Victor Serenati, this is a desert in the Afghanistan region, in this archaeological complex known as the Bactrium Margiana Archaeological Complex. Serenati, a Russian archaeologist, claimed to have found these three temple sites. And these temples were the size of a football field. And half of the temple site was dedicated to the baking of a sacred beverage, which he claims was the Haoma of the Persian region. He says this was a combination of cannabis and ephedra, and then in some cases, cannabis, ephedra, and opium, right? Mm -hmm. And they did analysis at the time and found evidence that these plants were still growing there. Now, there's been some debate about the analysis of this, but we have other archaeological finds that are related to this that corroborate. This has to do with the wider complex around the Persian use of Haoma. And one of the Persian branches of the Scythians, known as the Sakas, were also known as the Haoma Varga, that is the Haoma gatherers. And they would bring the Haoma to the region. And we know that the Scythians were burning cannabis because we have found braziers where rock stones were heated up and then put inside of a tent, and cannabis was thrown on it, and the fumes were held into the tent, like that little hot box, and then could be inhaled, right? But we also have evidence of gold goblets from the Scythians that contained preparation that contained cannabis and opium. Now, they just tested for cannabis and opium. I don't think that they tested for a better, but they probably would have found that as well. And the Russian archaeologists involved with this find said that these goblets were used for partaking of Haoma. And this is also related to the finds of 27 to 2,800-year-old cannabis in central China, but it's found with Indo-European culture, which is a European descent, you know, Caucasian people, that were living in China from about 2000 to 400 BC when the Han Chinese, the indigenous Chinese, chased them out of the area. And they found cannabis at a number of caves, tombs, a shaman and other figures from this culture. In one case, it was a bouquet of female cannabis flowers that were placed over the chest of the person in the tomb. In another case, it was a jar with female cannabis. In another case, a jar with female cannabis in another plant. And these were, you know, we're not talking about fiber strains of cannabis. These are psychoactive strains of cannabis that were, you know, had THC good quantity and female plants specifically chosen. So this was clearly used from the context of the people that it was buried with, if we've seen like shamans or something like that, by important figures. Now, there's a etymological or linguistic theory, Haoma, which was what this beverage was known in the Persian region among the Nazians and Zoroastrians, is actually derived from the Chinese name of cannabis, Huma, 
And that would have been familiar to these people who were known to have been in trade with this same temple I was discussing earlier because they found artifacts from both cultures at both sites, you know. And so the intermediary in this trade was this other branch of Scythians that were more nomadic that had the gold goblets with the cannabis beverage, right? So there's a lot to it. Also, you know, things like Wasson's theory of the drinking of urine. He disavows the 10th Mandela of the Rig Veda, which is written in Sanskrit as part of the Vedic Pantha canon. But to make his case for that, he goes to some way later text from the Hindu period about some interaction where uh, sadhus tricked into drinking the urine of a god. And you got to remember the role of urine in Vedic medicine and Hindu in Zoroastrian religion as well. You know, there's all sorts of medicinal qualities attributed to drinking urine, bull's urine as well, right? You know what I mean? This may have nothing to do with fly agaric mushrooms transferring through to the urine and stuff like that. It's not a very powerful case in my mind. And in regards to Allegro, you know, Allegro was a great scholar. You know, Wasson, as I show in my lengthy chapter, picking apart Wasson's book, and you can go to Google Books and find my book, Cannabis and the Soma Solution, and put in Wasson, and you can read the whole chapter right there on Google Books with all my various reasons, and I go over a lot of material. He was not. He had a bias and an agenda. You know, so do I. Mm. <laughs> Be honest about that and present speculation is speculation and fact is fact, you know. I don't think Wasson was that honest. I have a lot of respect for what he's done for entheogens and the study of these things and his you know work on South America and the mushroom there and stuff like that is a lot better. I don't think that he was correct about Soma at all, or there's any role for fly agaric in the Vedic religion. In regards to Allegro, he's a scholar, you know, he knew all sorts of languages and stuff like that. I read Sacred Mushroom on the Cross. I just think he kind of lost it with that myself. I don't buy that Jesus was a mushroom. He actually disallowed the Cannabossum reference, suggesting, as, as I recall, it's been a long time since I read it, based on his observation of what he referred to as the daughters on the college campuses that use cannabis. And he saw the term kana as related to the glands, the glands being the glands head of the penis, therefore a mushroom, because the mushroom and penis have this correlation, something like that, which I just don't buy it. In regards to Sula Bennett's identification of the term cannabosum as cannabis, it's important to remember that there's a variety of cannabis. There's no clear consensus on what the term cannabosum means, even amongst biblical scholars and Hebrew scholars. And things like cinnamon have been suggested, the calamus is one of them, lemongrass, a variety of plants have been suggested. And Sula Bennett based her arguments on falling back the modern term cannabis, and also later Hebrew terms for cannabis cannabis, back through and showing that it was related to this term cannabosum. Sula Bennett believed that this was actually a Semitic term and originated with Semitic people. My view is, and this is also the view of Professor Carl Rock, is that this is the Indo-European term, Kana, and it came to the Hebrews with its original name, and then the adjunct of Boston, which means fragrant in Hebrew, was added later. And as an item of trade, and we now know that cannabis was a huge item of trade in the Silk Road trade routes because of these archaeological discoveries of these Indo-Europeans in China, which I was discussing earlier. Hmm. And as this is the main Indo-European term for it, it traveled with these spice roots. And a lot of times when something arrives in an area with a name, it retains that name in the new foreign language, right? It's adopted into the language. Right. Other references to Kana in the Bible, such as that in Ezekiel, describe it coming in as an item of trade. In Jeremiah, it's described as coming from a foreign land, you know, what do I care for this counter from a foreign land that fell out of disfavor, right? So there's a lot to that. And, you know, I, I don't know, man. Evidence of fly agaric mushroom use in desert people is pretty hard-pressed in my mind, you know, in regards to Allegro, although a variety of psychoactive substances were likely used and evidence of that, such as mandrake references in the Bible, strong drink in the Bible is thought to be a concoction of a variety of potent psychoactive plants contained in some sort of alcoholic preparation. 
So there's all sorts of psychoactive plants. I'm not trying to suggest that it's purely cannabis. Right. You know, opium and other things were in use, you know, that sort of thing. Man, well, you clearly make a great case and you're very knowledgeable. And I didn't expect to talk about drinking urine, but, you know, I have had a lot of people suggest they want a full urine drinking show and I am not willing to be that committed to it. But it's interesting that you brought it up. I just wanted to ask you, because you do have knowledge about esoteric societies as well. I had heard that the urine drinking tradition is the secret at the end of the road of the Golden Dawn. And that almost seems too <laughs> goofy to believe. But do you think there's any truth to that? I don't think so. You know, <laughs> but there's definitely the ingestion of bodily fluids in uh, Crowley and Magic and OTO, which is based on actual Gnostic material. I have written about the ancient Gnostic sex cults in my book, Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible, and the ritual ingestion of semen and menzies as a Eucharistic substance yeah. that took place in the first centuries of Christianity. And that's an actual fact, you know. Crowley adopted some of these practices and worked them into his form of magic. You know, I'd say that a lot of this was also influenced by the Mysterium Bathymetus Revelatum. I know you've had Tracy Twyman on here, so you're probably familiar with that work mm -hmm. and its claims about the Knights Templar picking up Gnostic heresies, these same Gnostic practices I was just referring to. And it's important to remember in discussing Gnosticism and these sexual sorts of rites, which are very similar to some of the tantric rites that take place in India, are the oldest form of Gnosticism. It you know, takes place with the Ophites and Nassines, and these are the earliest of the Gnostic sects that we know about. Some people suggest that these sects are even pre-Christian, so it goes way back, you know, and there's even texts like the Question of Mary, which we only know about because the Church Fathers condemning it, excerpt, which described Jesus himself partaking of such sort of ritual ingestion of seminal fluids. Hmm. <laughs> Fun stuff. Well, you know, cannabis-infused wine does come up a lot in the various preparations you talk about in the book. Is anyone today recreating those preparations the same way just to try to experience exactly what they were writing about? I think Melissa Etheridge has marketed a cannabis-infused wine. Other people are preparing cannabis-infused wine. A friend of mine, Enrico Bouchard, is producing a cannabis-infused wine. Heineken's releasing a hemp beer. Most Canadian here in Canada is releasing a hemp beer. Yeah, the link goes way back, and the use of cannabis-infused wines is very widespread. The first anesthesia written about was in China, and it was a cannabis-infused wine. And the guy was, you know, knocking people out and doing complicated operations. And we find, you know, references to cannabis-infused wines all throughout the ancient world, Persia. Some have even suggested that Jesus was given some sort of cannabis-infused wine on the cross when he was given the vinegar on the sponge there, you know? Mm -hmm. All over the place, and into the Islamic period as well. You know, in Leap or 20, I talked about quintessences and arcanums, which are tinctures used in alchemy. You know, that have a role similar to that of the Philosopher's Stone. And we know that cannabis was a form used in the quintessences and arcanums because people like Paracelsus, Cardano, and other alchemists wrote about it and listed cannabis distinctly. So it was obvious people were aware of this sort of preparation. Yes, and I wanted to kind of talk about the alchemy and the uh, magic side of things because it's just odd how many feathers this little plant seems to ruffle because even among researchers in your field, you write about the prejudice against cannabis and other herbs among occult and magical scholars. And I would think that some of these herbs, marijuana in particular, would be pretty tame compared to the range of what occult scholars are looking at. Why is this prejudice so consistent, do you think? I think it's coming out of the whole Christian bias of our culture. You know what I mean? You find this particularly in, you know, the ancient world scholars. And people have discussed this, like Carl Rock and Dr. David Hillman, who are academics, who have run up to severe opposition. I know of one scholar that had tried to just get some scrapings from a site at the Oracle of Delphi, and they were too worried about what he might find. But there's been more recent starting to open up. Rock 
at first really struggled with it at the university that he works at, but now he's been giving courses on entheogens there. So you know what I mean? Things are changing. But yeah, there's huge academic prejudice to it, I think, because the people doing the research have not got experience themselves with these substances. They don't realize the effects of them enough to understand why they would play a role, you know? Mm-hmm. Same with a lot of magic. You go to a lot of neo-witches, you won't find the use of mandrake or entain or thatcher, maybe some lavender and some um, damiana or something like that. That's pretty mild. And few of them are actually aware of the whole plant-based shamanic origins of it. Right. And so, like I mentioned, Libra 420, this book is 700 plus pages with so many sources and grimoires and historical documents that were explored. As the pitch says, many of the works discussed have never been translated to English or haven't been published in centuries. And I just find that really impressive when I have a guest who's made that type of contribution to the historical record of these documents or works that have never been translated to English. Are there a couple that you find most important or that you're most proud of in this work? I'm lucky enough to be born in this wonderful age of information, for one thing. You know what I mean? And this mm-hmm. is like not something that even writers 20 years ago had access to information like we do now. And in services like Google Books, they have scanned in old Latin texts going back to the 16th, 15th century, the oldest books in the world, into Google, right? You know, because cannabis is still spelt the same as it was then, you can go right back into these Latin texts and find the references, you know? And some of them, you know, the majority of them are just passing references, maybe to cannabis fibers or something like that are kind of inconsequential for what you're studying. But every once in a while, you find a little gem, you know? And some of those gems that I think are pretty interesting that other people haven't written about or translated are references from Zosimos, one of the first alchemists in the 4th century. This is like a later 16th, 17th century book writing about Zosimos, but references to cannabis-infused wines and beers there and other plant infusions. Paracelsus's Arcanum, which was a cannabis infusion used for the treatment of epilepsy, something that a lot of people are now using cannabis for treating kids for epilepsy. And condemnations from the church. There's a great lambasting of people comparing the sinner to cannabis and going over all the ways the sinner and cannabis are similar. They're twisted like the twisted fibers of the hemp rope, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And I spent a lot of money getting this stuff properly translated. I try to figure out with my basic ability of Latin and using Latin translation online to find out what was of interest. So I was limiting my spending to the most valuable documents I could find. But I have no doubt that there's much, much more to be found yet, you know? Mm-hmm. The important thing is to know the various spellings of cannabis, 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 cannabism, you know, different things like that that were used. And then you can go and find the references. And then when you find the references, figure out who the authors are, if they're important figures, what the book's about, and then start to figure out the context of it all. But yeah, it was wonderful. Initially, when I started writing Libra 420, I thought maybe I would get a chapter about the medieval and Renaissance material altogether. And I would focus mostly on the 19th and early 20th century figures like Blavatsky and Crowley and stuff like that. But just the opposite happened. You know, as I began to really dig in, I just realized there was so much more in this medieval and Renaissance period in regards to alchemical and magical references than I had even begun to imagine. And I could only put the wealth of material I had on the 19th and 20th century into one brief chapter in Libra 420. I had a whole chapter on Crowley's use of drugs that I had to pull out of Libra 420 due to space, as well as about 50,000 other words on that period, because the book was taken over by this fascinating role of cannabis in medieval and Renaissance alchemy magic and secret societies. Mm-hmm. And the chapter that really got me was the Sefer Raziel Cannabis, Mirror Magic, and Crystal Gazing. I guess the uh, Sefer Raziel is a grimoire 
it's not it's one I wasn't familiar with. I guess it's from the 16th century and it references the use of cannabis to see spirits and demons in a magic mirror. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, there's a few Sephiraziels. This is a Sephiraziel Liber Salamanis. It's from the 16th century. And it has a recipe for seeing spirits and devils in a magic mirror. These were usually black obsidian mirrors that didn't hold a lot of reflection and just stare into and began to see visions. And it describes the use of a cannabis ointment mixed with other herbs for the same purpose. We also find a similar recipe, but with a different secondary plant being used in the grimoire, the Book of Oberon, which is also dedicated to a lot of fairy magic. Yeah. Cannabis's use with magic mirrors really goes back a long ways. You know, there are suggestions that this combination, you know, was new some centuries before this. And it's important to remember a lot of these grimoires are collections of earlier material. That's clearly the case with a text by Libra Salamatis, which had to be, you know, they weren't printed. It would be dangerous to print such a thing. This all had to be hand copied and passed around, you know. And we can see the continued use of cannabis with magic mirrors into the 19th century with figures like Pascal Beverly Randolph and Louis Alphonse Cagney and other Rosicrucian figures as well, who were still using this combination, you know, centuries later. So obviously it had been around for, it was a very popular way of using mirror scrying, you know, and I really got interested in, you know, what was taking place with mirror scrying. And one night I watched this kind of campy horror movie that was made by some millionaire who was also a meth head, and he spent all his money making this movie called Eat the Evil Within. Hmm. And it's about a guy that has this relationship with a mirror, you know, and there's a line in it where the demon in the mirror says to him, I'm the one who tells you your dreams at night. And this is kind of true, I think. In my conclusion to Libra 420, trying to understand its prevalent role in magic, where it was using magic mirrors, but also in fumigation rituals where the vision was seen in the smoke, right? And in alchemy, you know, where we see things like the marriage of the sun and the moon and stuff. And I think this has to do with cannabis's relationship with what is known variously as the unconscious and the subconscious mind, unconscious according to Carl Jung and subconscious according to Sigmund Freud, Jung's mentor. It's interesting because the whole concept of the unconscious and subconscious mind came about through the study of cannabis by earlier psychiatric-type figures like Dr. J.J. Moreau, who was part of the famous Le Club de Hashishins. And he was suggesting, and this was also the suggestion of earlier people, that in the intoxicated state from cannabis, what people were experiencing was something similar to madness and also similar to what takes place in dreams. You know, like, you take a look at your dream, in your dream, you're telling yourself the dream, you're other people in your dream, and it's all pretty real, you know? Mm -hmm. So this means that there's an aspect to your consciousness which is kind of split from your regular awareness, but is still got consciousness, right? And this is what, again, I said Freud referred to as the subconscious, and Jung referred to the unconscious. In Freud's case, he suggested that, you know, it was like all our repressed memories, stuff we didn't want to think about, junk like that, and once in a while it would reach up out and come out of the basement. Well, Jung expanded on this, and he thought that that was true, but beyond that, there was an aspect of a collective consciousness, what he referred to as the collective unconscious. And he compared this to the role of instinct in animals. Instinct is genetic memory. You know, when some animals are born, like a sea elephant, it can go fishing the day it's born, you know? Deers, horses can stand up and walk around. They're not born helpless like the human being, and this is because although we have a very similar system in our brain, right, left hemispheres, that type of stuff, we have this huge frontal lobe. Deep buried beneath that is the same sort of aspects of the brain that control instinct in those animals is inside us. And these are really deep recesses of the mind, you know what I mean? And this is where Jung believed that people recognize symbolism and myths and things like that inherently because they've been so repeatedly told through the human experience that's ingrained into an aspect of human consciousness, right? Now, when you take a look at the relationship between cannabis and dreaming, you know, that seems counterintuitive because most people that smoke a lot of cannabis report that they dream less. 
And in the 80s, they were kind of looking at some of these things, and they were looking at how cannabis influenced melatonin levels. And they found that immediately after ingestion, there could be a spike as much as 4,000 times regular daytime levels of melatonin with cannabis, right? Hmm. And so likely people are spiking their melatonin all day with cannabis, and they go in bed at night, and then they have less melatonin going. But one thing I noticed a number of times was I'd wake up at like 4 in the morning, you know, maybe couldn't get back to sleep, smoke a bowl of cannabis, and then go to sleep. I would have the most intense lucid dreams I ever had. And I attribute this to the same spike in melatonin. I was already in a deep sleep, got up just a moment, had some cannabis get back, melatonin spikes, and then the melatonin effects dreaming. And I have these super intense dreams. I believe there's a correlation there. And I think that this is what people are doing with, with the magic mirrors or seeing smokes and things, is they're accessing an aspect of the subconscious or the unconscious mind. And that's what they're interacting with when they use cannabis this purpose and they're causing the same sort of split in consciousness that we experience in the dream state and the one that speaks to you from the mirror is the one that tells you your dreams at night. Hmm. <laughs> I like it. I think that's a great theory. And uh you know, as a daily cannabis user, I am really interested in the spiritual communication aspects. You write about the Picatrix, a grimoire that's largely considered the foundation of the Western magical tradition, and much of it is about contacting the planetary spirits. As you say, opium was used in invocation of the sun. Cannabis was used to appease the moon. Well, that's interesting. As a smoker today, you know, without a historical or magical context, are we dialing up the moon spirit if we smoke a joint at night? Is that where the stoner thoughts come from? You know, I mentioned alchemy in the marriage of the sun and the moon, and I kind of see that as the sun is like our daytime present awareness, our present consciousness, and the moon is our nighttime consciousness. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that what cannabis offers is a mingling of that. And I know myself that although I seek out confirmation of my ideas and corroborating material to build my ideas up, a lot of my work has purely come through intuitive channels, you know what I mean? I just kind of have a nose for it, you know? And I really believe that cannabis, my constant use of cannabis, I'm definitely a, you know, <laughs> a regular user of the herb, Cheers. has a lot to do with my ability to dig up all this cannabis material, this forgotten lore. It's like a part of my consciousness knows it or remembers it. Hmm. That is really interesting, man. I have a lot of friends who comment regularly on the luck that I just seem to stumble into, and I definitely am the biggest cannabis smoker of the group, so maybe there's a correlation. Who knows? Yeah, no, I know a lot of highly intelligent cannabis users. I think, you know, it's important to remember that with cannabis, intent is everything, and you spend all day playing video games. It's not really throwing more gas in the motor and revving it up. You know, you're not going to be having the same experience, say, as some sadhu in India who partakes of a chillum of ganja to Shiva before sitting down to his asana, even though you're doing the same substance, just because of the intent and beliefs involved, you're doing different things. Right. And, you know, I've interviewed some magic practitioners about just the history of magic, how to get involved with it. Of course, there's many, many grimoires that have lists of spirits and there's pantheons of different spirits that you can contact. And some people who are more of the chaos flavor advocate for creating your own personal pantheon. And I guess I would ask you, do you recall the names of any spirits or entities that are partial to cannabis? Maybe I should start my ritual contact with these kindred spirits, so to speak. Well, you know, it's funny. I did have, I mentioned my experience with cannabis being the tree of life at the beginning but I did have this whole situation with magic later while I was researching my first book, Gringle, The Tree of Life, Marijuana, and Magic and Religion, that has to do with Crowley and the number sequence 777. What had happened is, you know, I had this religious experience about cannabis being the tree of life, was collecting all this information, but I was kind of on a Christian bent, I think, because I'd had the initial experience reading the book of Revelation for a little while. And I was working on my first book, which was like all my other books about cannabis and magic and religion. Mm -hmm. 
And I was collecting as many quotes as I could to document the role of cannabis in various areas. And one of the people that I had found out about while I was researching this area was this guy, Francois Rabelais, who was a 16th century monk and bachelor of medicine. And he wrote this book, Gargantuan Pantagruel. And he was an alchemist as well, master of the quintessence. And I suggest that he was preparing cannabis quintessences. And he had coded references to cannabis in three chapters of his book, Pantagruel, under the name The Herb Pantagruelian. And we know this is cannabis. It's not my opinion. It's well known that these are references to cannabis. And they were banned by the church for some period, and even some modern translations of Rabelais' work disallowed them. So I was like, I got to read this, you know. And Rabelais writes in a style known as the language of the birds, kind of an esoteric kind of style where you hint at stuff and build around stuff symbolically. And so you got to know a fair bit about history and things like that to really get the gist of what he's talking about. And so I had to read it a few times to kind of understand it. And while I was reading his book, I found that he had this place called the Abbey of Thelema. And the law of the Abbey of Thelema is do as thou wilt. And years before any of this, the one Crowley book I had read was Diary of the Drug Fiend. And I remembered, I go, oh, that Crowley guy, he had the Abbey of Thelema and do as thou wilt in his book. He must have known about this guy Rabelais. And I kind of considered Crowley kind of a Satanist at that time. He was kind of, I didn't know a lot about him, just the basic societal view of him, right? You know what I mean? He's kind of a bad guy. And I thought, well, I've got to maybe check him out now and see, you know, if I can find a good cannabis reference for my book. And I got this book, Magic and Theory and Practice. And I started reading it. I was really digging it, you know, mm -hmm. and I was talking about the Templars. And by this time, I was already interested in the Templars and cannabis and their relationship with the assassins. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And then I got to this part of the book where he talks about sacrificing a male child. Hello. And then he said that I did this myself 150 times in the last year. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is horrible. What have I been reading? This is demonic. I can't have any part of this. And I went down to another town, Victoria, and I visited a friend of mine, and he had a copy of Gnosis Magazine. I opened it up, and there was a letter to the editor, and it was Child Sacrifice. And they had just done an article about Crowley, and the guy was talking about the same thing that I was just worried about. I was like, oh. And they explained it as a puckish reference to his sexual magic and said those are actually references to orgasms. And I thought, okay, well, that seemed kind of weird to me at the time, but it wasn't child sacrifice. And I thought, well, I've got to go find a book by Crowley that has a good cannabis reference in it. There must be something out there. And so I went into this bookstore, and there was a copy of this book, Lieber Alley, the book of wisdom or folly. And it was a new book. I was like, oh, I looked in the back under marijuana, nothing. I looked under H for hemp, and I see hashish. And there's like six pages of it. And I start reading it, and it's written in the same sort of esoteric style of jargon that Rabelais wrote in, and I was like, I can't make sense of this. This is no good, and I stick it back. I go to another bookstore and get a couple of used books. I get a copy of Ram Dass's Be Here Now and a copy of The Tenth Mandela of the Rig Veda, yeah. which is the one with some references. And when I go up to pay, the lady points out the price of Ram Dass's book, and it was $3.33 when it came out in the 70s, you know. And then she rings up my books, and then my change comes up $7.77, and I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool because she just said the 333 thing and we kind of laughed. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go get that Liber Ali book and see if there's anything to it. Yeah. If I read it a few times, maybe like Rabelais, I'll start to understand what he's talking about. So I get it. And then I open it up in my car and it says, The Book of Wisdom of Falling from the Great and Wild Beast 666 to His Magical Son 777. And I'm like, whoa, huh. man. That's so fucking weird. You know? yeah. And then I start running into this huge string of sequences where I keep running into this number 777 to the point where I get this check that enabled me to, after a lot of struggling and some sort of magical prayers to get money for this book, I get this check through this crappy business deal um, mm -hmm. that the number was 0777333000. And I fucking was like, fuck me, you know, that got to call me check even, you know, to this day. This is all in the 90s. And for a while, I was signing, you know, the first article I ever wrote, I signed, you know, Chris Bennett 777. And it says that the book was written for a certain guy, 
but it doesn't say who it is. Maybe it's more written for mankind now. And so I didn't know anything about it. And at a certain point, I just decided, and I was signing artwork with it and shit that I, I decided it was like some weird ego trip and it had nothing to do with the historical type of research that I was trying to do. And that was not cool that I was caught up in it and focusing on it. And I just stopped, you know? And then years later, I found out that this book was written for a specific guy. And this guy was Charles Stansfield Jones, known as Fratter Akat. And they lived in Vancouver where I had grown up. And I was like, well, oh, that's kind of weird, you know? And then I found out he lived in North Vancouver, which is more specific into the area I grew up. And I'm like, whoa, that's kind of weird, you know, because I'd already had this 7-7 experience. And then I found out he lived in Deep Cove, which is like the square two miles area that I grew up in. Damn. In Vancouver here for the first 13 years of my life. And I got stuck there. I couldn't find out anymore. All I could find out was he lived at this place called Tall Timbers in Deep Cove. And then one day I was coming back from an event in Oregon and talking with a friend of mine, and she was really into ghosts. And I said, oh, you know, when I was a kid, I saw or thought I saw the same ghost twice on my street and told her the story about it. For some reason, that made me think about this whole Charles Stansfield Jones thing again when I got home. And I Googled him in Deep Cove again, you know, and I ended up in this Deep Cove historical site. And there was a letter from his foster son. And he said, yeah, I lived in a house called Tall Timbers on Caledonia Avenue, which was my street. Huh. <laughs> and wow. Akkad, who Crowley had specifically written this essay about hashish called The Most Holy Grass of the Arab, the Herbo Santissimo Arabico, lived like two doors down the street from where I grew up. Huh. And right in between the spot where I'd seen this ghost and I realized as a kid, when I was about eight or nine, I got taken to meet his widow because I was telling my friend that a witch lived in the house. And my friend's mother was so concerned about this that she decided to take me to meet the nice old lady who lived at the house, who, in hindsight, was a witch. <laughs> wow. Member of the AA and the OTO. <laughs> <laughs> so him and Crowley, I released Libra 420. I planned on releasing it on April 20th. It ended up coming out 2018. Well, I was working on it at the same time when I found out that he lived on my actual street. Uh, they, I found that they actually did a ritual on April 20th, 1918. So I opened up the book with that ritual. But cannabis was a big part of their relationship. And at the first OTO lodge here in North Vancouver, on the student reading list, one of the first things is the psychology of hashish. Crowley's 90-page essay on hashish, and they also have records of experimenting with mescaline at the lodge, you know, so it's clearly a big part of it, you know, and Akkad, Charles Stansfeld Jones, was a great friend of the famous author Malcolm Lowry, who wrote one of the most well-known novels of all time, Under the Volcano, and it's well-known now that Lowry incorporated all sorts of occult information in Under the Volcano from his relationship with Akkad, who he studied under for many years. And one of the lines that they worked into under the volcano is a line where the old man says Bong is Soma. And there's a whole book written about it in the Rig Veda. And the book that it was written about was the 10th Mandela of the Rig Veda <laughs> that I picked up when I had that initial experience with 777. And I wrote a whole book about Bong or cannabis as we know it being Soma. Wow, wow. What a great story, man. So there's some sort of synchronicity there. I don't know what the thing of it, but it's too undeniable. Luckily, I documented a lot of this stuff. I published articles where I was using this 777 thing in the 90s before I knew about who Akkad was or any of that. So I documented a lot of it on the way. And it's too weird to just be coincidence. So I kind of think there's some connection with this 777 stuff. You know, Akkad in 1948, just down the road from my street before he died in 1950, he claimed to have had some experience on April 2nd in 1948 that superseded Crowley's Age of Horus and replaced it with the Aeon of Knot. Interestingly, I'm working on a book right now, which is kind of a follow-up to some of the material from Libra 420, called Alistair Crowley and the Herb Dangerous, A History of Cannabis in Thelema. So on eBay, there was like a cache of about 300 letters between Akkad and Kenneth Grant and 
Germer. Akka was trying to take over both the OTO and the AA just before he died, based on his revelation of the Aeon of Matt. So he was pretty active through the whole period. I don't know how much you know about the OTO, but Wagner's Parsifals pretty influential on both the OTO and the rituals Crowley wrote for it. Theodore Roos, the founder of the OTO, was actually a singer-dancer in the first performances of Wagner's famous opera, Parsifal. And Parsifal, the symbolism of it, serves the basis of the OTO Gnostic Mass. Well, one of the things I've been finding out recently is the foremost Wagner autobiographer and translator of his work in the 19th century claims that Wagner was in Wagner, I guess I should be saying, was inspired to write Parsifal after being turned on to a cannabis tincture by Arthur Schopenhauer, a famous philosopher who was also deeply influential on Crowley's philosophy. Huh. Wow. <laughs> what a tangled web, man. And that story you told is just so great. And what good magic to release the book 100 years after Crowley does a ritual on 420. I mean, yeah, everything I, I hear about magic suggests that that is the way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I also made the book 777 pages because of that whole 777 connection, you know? Yeah. I love it, man. Well, again, great work. Remind the people where they can keep abreast of what you're doing and follow your work and get the books. Sure, yeah. You can follow me on Facebook. I'm probably pretty easy to find. You can find Libra 420, Cannabis Magical Herbs and the Occult on Amazon and other sites. If you search Libra 420, it'll show up. Cannabis and the Soma Solution as well, you can find there. And I have a blog with a lot of articles over at CannabisCulture.com. If you search my name there, Chris Bennett, you'll be able to find that. I've got numbers of documentaries on YouTube, like Cannabossum, The Hidden Story of Cannabis in the Old Testament. Smoke of the Oracles, Cannabis in Aging Greece. If you search my name and cannabis, those should turn up on YouTube as well. Awesome. And you mentioned that next book. Do you have any idea when that's coming out, the Crowley expansion? Probably a year or two at least. You know, It takes me a while to put these things together. I had a fair bit written already that I pulled out from Libra 420, but I really want to get into Hubbard and Parsons and the role of drugs and that whole scene. So I've got some research to do yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I can think after 777 pages on cannabis, magical herbs, and the occult, one might want to take a little break. <laughs> there you go, man. Understandable. Well, awesome. A match made in cannabis-fueled heaven. Real pleasure to have you here today. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, sweet lady cannabis and holy Ozark, Cyrusside Chatters, Chris Bennett, 777 pages. Can you believe it? For real, if this is a subject that you find interesting and you want a big fat reference guide for on your bookshelf, I don't think you could do any better than Lieber 420. And I think Chris is another guest that has been requested through the THC Plus guest request forums. I know I've seen it, and I also know I have a huge, huge list, but I think this interview actually happened pretty organically through Facebook or a comment section, something like that. But Completely appropriate for it to have emerged in a strange kind of life of its own way. And of course, it's a good topic because marijuana does have major benefits. Can you abuse it? Sure, I absolutely do. I actually practice immersion therapy in the sense that I smoke about as much as a person can, hoping that I'm going to overindulge to the point of wanting to take a break or something. But several years into this program, I am waiting for that to take effect, but there will be ill effects from anything. We shouldn't have to immediately go there with weed. I had a friend in college who was trying to pass a drug test for a job and drank so much water that he had to go to the hospital for water poisoning. Didn't know that was a thing, but it did happen. And you don't hear people tacking that on, like, make sure you drink plenty of water, it's the best thing for you, but of course, don't drink enough to drown yourself. It's kind of a given, and... I guess I'm a little defensive because I referred to cannabis as universally good in the intro, and obviously that's a bit hyperbolic, but not that much. And not when you recognize that even water can be overdone. And I know I've already talked a ton of times about marijuana and other psychedelics and their importance to me, the impact and influence of just a few super powerful experiences, which I think we all owe to ourselves. 
a breakthrough, mystical experience will change your life. The number one thing that holds people back from walking the creative path or a risky dream-inspired path and instead staying in a safe job that they hate, that's fear, right? The number one thing, let's stay safe. Let's make the non-risky choice and just stay the course. That fear is cultivated in a life that is devoid of these breakthrough experiences, in my opinion. And in the same way I say that I know enough about certain conspiracies to be satisfied, rather than arguing with people about those little details that we might never know, I feel similarly about a lot of the things we talked about today. Is it cannabis specifically in every instance, and in every reference? Eh, I don't know. But even if I think of some of these references to cannabis as to-be-determined, psychoactive, regionally prevalent, entheogenic plant, the whole thing is still super fascinating to me. I mean, even Chris said that when you're talking about some of these cannabis-infused teas, it's cannabis-infused with opium. So maybe cannabis is just riding co-pilot in some of these situations. Opium might be more the key word there. No doubt, though, Chris is an impressive researcher who really knows his niche. I feel quite fortunate to have had him here. He's a guy I'd love to see on a show like Rogan sometime. Also, I think we edited most of it out, but you might have heard his parrot in the background there for the first little while. The other benefit of Rogan is that they're in the same quiet room away from traffic and parrots and clanging dishes, neighborhood dogs, all that stuff that we get here and try our best to minimize. But regardless, if you liked the first hour, we get into a lot of fun stuff in the second. For Plus members, we talk about cannabis and time, cannabis, the crucifixion, and death and rebirth rituals, the Holy Grail being a cup that held a sacred psychedelic brew, entheogens in the age of suppression, and Saturn's relationship to cannabis. Just a full-spectrum, cannabis-fueled cornucopia of fun stuff. And I guess I should mention this too because I get this question every so often. It's come up a few times recently where people ask, I never get why, as a Plus member, I'm hearing you recap what I just listened to. Well, one, I think it's nice to vaguely know what topics were in the Plus show because you do pay for it and I keep the show in one complete MP3 file so you don't really know. But also, just because if I record two separate endings, one with that, one without, something might come out differently, or I might say something off the cuff that's not in both endings, and really it's just better to not have too much difference between two different versions of a show. So just for my own peace of mind that every listener who makes it this far, of course, here's the exact same wrap-up, even if one little part of it is recapping the Plus Show topics. I hope that makes sense, but speaking of getting this far into the show, we had our first Open Lines THC joint session, and I thought it went pretty well, but a decent amount of people contacted me concerned that they felt I didn't give enough notice or they didn't know it was happening, and I posted it in social media and talked about it in several wrap-up portions. I know it's not the best place on a show to talk about news the very end, but this has sort of been the tradition for a long time. And other people were concerned when they heard about Zoom because they didn't want to have to download a new app. Well, I should let you know that you don't have to download anything. It is browser-based. It even offers a temporary phone number for calling in. So it's about as easy and robust as I could find. There's a short name and email registration, but that's going to guard us a little bit against trolls and that kind of thing. I don't have a call screener, so I'm just going in without any protection at all, except for a slight registration hurdle. Anyway, that has been uploaded for Plus People. It is on the front page of the HiresideChatsPlus.com, and joint sessions will get a spot in the bonus material section as soon as there's a second one. If you want to get in on the next joint session, hopefully you use Facebook or Twitter. I barely use them. But I will announce these things a week or two out. And then, of course, here in the wrap-ups of the show. And I'd be happy to go over an hour if the calls keep coming in. But check that out if you want to hear from the THC audience mainly. Definitely got some interesting calls. And that's pretty much it for today. 
Thanks everybody for listening. I know there are a ton of shows out there, so it is much appreciated that I get your attention and time. Plus people, thanks for supporting the ride and paying for that full experience. I know there are a lot of full experiences and Patreons out there too. So I appreciate all you guys. Consider this meeting of the Midnight Society closed. Your move, cannabis concealers, entheogen extinguishers, and alters and omitters of our very psychedelic history. Your fucking...